Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and today I am joined here again today by the lovely Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the case of the Romanoff family, and Journey is going to be educating us on the very interesting science of forensic anthropology and how it played a very instrumental role in this case. I also would like to note before we start that there is a listener's discretion advised as we do have descriptions of execution and suicide. So with the intro out of the way, uh, let's get started. Nicole, would you like to tell us about the Romanoffs? I would love to. I would also like to preface this with saying um, Russian is not my native language, so any of the names I try and pronounce may be butchered, but I'm going to try my best. So the Romanovs were a Russian imperial family that came into power in 1613, and they held the Russian throne for over three centuries, surprisingly. The dynasty that preceded them was the medieval Rurik dynasty, and after their downfall, there was about a 15-year period of like political instability and upheaval that was taking place. And... After this period, uh, Mikhail Romanov became the first Romanov Tsar, and he was elected at only 16 years old in 1613. So the family were high-ranking aristocrats, and so Mikhail was the best compromise um, that these like feuding Russian elites could kind of come up with to take over kind of this leadership position. And in addition to their status, the Romanovs also had distant claims to the throne. But once he became Tsar, um, he took the name Michael, and this was Michael I, and he reigned for about 32, or he reigned, sorry, for 32 years. His son, Alexis, it was a very smooth transition over to him, and he became the next Tsar in 1645. Up until 1797, there was really no pattern of succession to this dynasty, but generally it was um, passed down from the father to the Tsar's eldest son. And this was a custom kind of transferred over from the previous Rurik dynasty. And if the Tsar had no son, the throne would then be passed down to the closest male relative. Um, Alexis's son, Fyodor III succeeded him, but after his death, Fyodor's brother and half-brother, Ivan and Peter, they both wanted the throne, and Peter was ultimately the one that was chosen to be the new czar. This really upset Ivan. He staged a revolution or whatever, um, basically kind of held a tantrum, and then it resulted in a joint ruling of Ivan and Peter. So they ruled together for a little bit, but then in 1696, Peter became the sole ruler and he created a law of succession that would allow the Tsar to choose his successor, but it didn't really stick. Um, And he became known as Peter the Great because during his reign, he was able to transform Russia, which was like a landlocked state, into one of the largest empires in Europe. And he was also the first Tsar to be named emperor and he actually was the one that titled himself as emperor of this newfound russian empire and so this was in 1721 
And although, like I said, he put in place this law of succession, he himself didn't choose a successor. And so throughout kind of the 18th century, the succession of the dynasty remained a bit problematic. Like there were still some issues with it. Nothing was clear cut. Um, But eventually he was succeeded by his wife, Catherine I. And she was only a Romanov through marriage. And because there were 18 Romanovs that had ruled, I'm not really going to go into the detail about all of them. But essentially after Catherine I's death, there were six more Romanovs that took the throne. And then after Peter III died, his widow, Catherine II, who was a German princess, she ruled from 1762 to 1796. And it was during this time period that um, it was often called the golden age of the Russian Empire. And it was during this time that um, Western European philosophies and cultures kind of were starting to be adopted in Russia. And so Peter III and Catherine II's son, Paul I, kind of laugh at Paul, very not like the other names. It's a very American name to come out of a Russian royal family. (laughs) Very, very American, yes. Um, Paul would then become emperor, and he was the one that put in place a fixed succession law. And so this was going to establish that definite order of succession for the Romanovs, which um, ultimately stayed in place. Um, He was murdered, unfortunately, and (laughs) his son succeeded him, Alexander I. After Alexander's death, there was some confusion about who the rightful heir was, and um, there were a couple more czars that were on the throne. And then ultimately, Nicholas II, he would become the last czar of the Romanovs. So he ruled from 1894 to 1917, and during this time, he married Alix of Hesse, Hesse, and she was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. She would later take the name Alexandra Fyodorovna, I think. I'll just go with Alexandra. Um, But together, they had four daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and one son, Alexei. So Nicholas apparently wasn't that great of a leader. He had very minimal knowledge and experience um, with the government, which doesn't help at all being kind of the head of it. So during his reign, the Russo the Russo Japanese War, the subsequent uprising of the Russian workers in 1905, which is also known as Bloody Sunday. And the Russians and Russia's, sorry, involvement in World War I all happened under his reign. So out of kind of the 300 years, this was like the worst reign that I read. <laughs> so we love to see that. Yeah, it um, really did not go well for him. And these all ultimately caused the fall of the Russian Empire. So that was great. But in addition to Nicholas kind of being seen as politically weak, uh, his wife, Alexandra, also wasn't really liked by the majority of Russian people. So she had a distaste for Russian culture, apparently. Um, She had her German ancestry that didn't sit well with some people. And she was extremely close and loyal to a man called Rasputin. And he was a Russian mystic, and apparently he had healing abilities and prophetic powers. 
So Alexandra believed that Rasputin could cure her son Alexei from his chronic illness. And so he had hemophilia. And this is um, this caused him to be bedridden at the time because of how dangerous it was for then. Anyone who's not familiar with hemophilia, it's a disorder where your blood's unable to clot properly. So essentially you just keep bleeding and this meant for Alexei, any minor injury could be life-threatening for him because he just can't stop the bleeding. And apparently this disease was, or this disorder, was referred to as the royal disease, fun fact of the day, since so many of Queen Victoria's relatives ended up with hemophilia. That's crazy. Do you know, it's probably genetic then, right? Like it's hereditary? Yeah. 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 Um, but Rasputin's influence over the Romanov family did not sit well with a lot of people on top of the already existing dislike. Um, and this included nobles and church leaders. And so they kind of just saw him as a fraud, um, which kind of makes sense for his claims. But eventually nobles got fed up with him. And so they just had him murdered in 1916, as one does. <laughs> And after World War I, more and more people began joining the Bolsheviks. And um, this was a radical group, a radical revolutionary group. And so they were trying to overthrow the Tsar. And more people were joining, wanting to help overthrow Nicholas. And eventually in March of 1917, Nicholas renounced his position as czar, and he actually um, passed it to his brother, but he refused the very next day. And this had put an end to a 300-plus year reign of the Romanov dynasty. So that was kind of brief spark notes of the family. Now the fun stuff of it all. Uh, Nicholas and his family were sent to Siberia under house arrest, and they were then relocated to a mansion in Yekaterinburg. Yekaterinburg. This house was owned by a rich engineer named um, Ipatiev, so it came to be known as the Ipatiev House. And it was taken over by the Bolsheviks to hold the Romans, the Romanovs, not the Romans, um, captive. So in June of 1918, a civil war had broken out between the Bolsheviks' Red Army and then the anti-Bolsheviks' White Army. And so as the White Army was advancing on the city that they were being held at, um, the Red Army feared that they would end up liberating the Romanovs once they got to the city. So their plan was just to execute the family so they could not be released or saved from their kind of imprisonment there. Um, and it is rumored that Vladimir Lenin, he was the head of like the Soviet Russia government at the time. He wanted the rest of the Romanov family alive so he could use them as political pawns. And he just wanted to kill Nicholas. Um, that wasn't what happened though. I don't know if this was actually what he wanted, just some speculation, but in the early morning hours of July 17th, 1918, the Romanovs, along with four attendants, were ordered down into the basement and were told to stand along the back wall. And it was almost as if they were lined up to take a family portrait. Um, but then an execution squad apparent, uh, soon appeared through a door, unfortunately. 
And before opening fire, Lenin apparently said, quote, the reign of the Romanovs has reached its end, despite the fact that relatives both outside and inside the country are trying to liberate them. The Euro-Soviet of the workers, workers deputies has decreed they must be shot, end quote. Now, that was originally said in Russian, not English. So there's going to be some slight translation variations, but kind of the gist of it is that. Um, so the firing squad soon opened fire at the 11 uh, members and Nicholas apparently was shot first and killed first um, as he was shot in the face, unfortunately. And it came to light that there were a few problems that arose once they started opening fire. Um, and it went on for about 20 minutes from some of the sources that I read, which seems like a really long time to that's, be shooting. Yeah, that's a really long time to be like open firing into a room. Yeah. So what had happened is that, well, one, because they were in a basement, a stone basement, bullets were just like ricocheting off the walls and stuff like that. But they had also noticed that some of the daughters just weren't dying when they were being shot. Um, so it turns out they had sewn a whole bunch of jewels into their corsets and to their clothing to hide them from the Bolsheviks. And so since diamonds are one of the hardest natural occurring substances, uh, they, along with other jewels, actually acted as a bulletproof vest to this gunfire. And they've actually recreated the study and, like, did it very similar, like, Mythbuster style to it. And there were no penetrating shots to their study as well. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That is so cool. Right? Could you imagine, um, though? You're, like, with the part of the firing squad. You go downstairs. You're, like, yeah, I hate this family. I'm going to kill them all. And then they're just not dying. And they had this, like, Rasputin figure who's just, like magical they're like oh my gosh maybe they're haunted maybe they'll never die like that would be terrifying they're like some immortality situation yeah. oh my goodness um so i think that was a big part of why it took 20 minutes i don't know how accurate the 20 minute time frame is because i could see them running out of ammunition also very fast if they're just shooting rounds over and over again um but after this, they were obviously tasked with disposing of the bodies. And one of the sources I read um, said that when they went to lift up one of the daughters, they actually screamed out. So I don't think they were all dead when they left. Um, I think they said two of them weren't fully killed when they were taken. Um, but this had caused them to uh, be beaten and then repeatedly stabbed with bayonets to make sure they were dead. Um, so with theories later on, there was a lot of people that were like, well, two of them left alive. How do we know they ended up being killed afterwards? So keep that in mind. Um, but after this whole execution, news spread that only Nicholas was killed for crimes. Um, sorry, he was killed for crimes against Russian people. And news articles and all of the other stuff coming out had said that the rest of the family was actually moved to safety. So a lot of people actually held out hope that they were alive, and many of them did believe this. 
But an inquiry into the kind of the disappearance and the deaths began when this white army had entered um, the Ipatiev house. And so this is where the Romanovs were staying, where they were killed. And they found nothing except their possessions kind of thrown about the house. Um, I don't know if they went into the basement and saw the massacre remains, like what was left of it down there. I don't know if they cleaned it up. But they decided to start an investigation into um, what had happened. And it wasn't until eight years later that it was finally admitted that the entire family was executed. They just didn't want people to know, so they just didn't tell people, I guess. And even after it came out that the entire family was killed, people were still adamant on believing that some of them had survived. And many had reported sightings of them. And kind of once this came out, more and more sightings apparently happened um, with people thinking that they couldn't have all been killed. Like they were really thinking that some of them had escaped um, eight years had gone by. So they're just kind of, you know, creating another lie kind of thing. But um, out of these rumors, there was one that circulated that the youngest daughter, Anastasia had managed to escape and survive the attack. And although there were several attempts of people coming forward uh, claiming to be one of the Romanovs, the case of Anna Anderson, Anderson, sorry, is the most famous. With her, she was pulled out of a canal in Berlin after trying to take her own life in 1920. And at first, she had a complete loss of memory when she was um, rescued, I guess. And she slowly started to regain her memories afterwards. But while she was in the asylum, I'm not completely sure why they sent her to an asylum, um, probably because of mental illness. Um, She had seen a photo of the Tsar and his family, and this had apparently excited her. And after this, she started claiming that she was Anastasia and the Grand Duchess and all of this stuff. And so she had recovered memories, apparently, of her time as the Duchess. And she said that she was saved the night of the execution by her sister who had shielded her from the bullets. And although she was wounded, she claimed she awoke under a night sky outside. After this, apparently a soldier named Tchaikovsky rescued her, um, gave her some medical attention, fixed her up and then helped smuggle her into Romania And there she ended up having a son with him, but her husband Tchaikovsky would soon be killed. And this caused her to flee to Berlin to try and find the remaining Romanov members. Being unsuccessful in her search, she then uh, said that this was when she decided to take her own life. And that's how she ended up again found in Berlin and where we are now. So many people, Sorry, many people actually believed Anderson um, because of this ability to recount a very plausible sounding story, given the information provided at the time. And she was able to recount information about the family during pre-revolutionary Russia. I'm not entirely sure what information that was, um, but apparently she knew stuff that other people didn't know that 
was family specific. And she did look strikingly similar to Anastasia as well. So aside from all the standard physical features uh, that kind of looked like, she had scars consistent with those that looked like um, scars from bayonet stabbings and bullet wounds. They both had the same stub toe problem, I learned. (laughs) I don't know what that means or if it's just like a short toe. And apparently their ears were identical. And that was one of the features that um, went like compared the two and said that they were the same person. That's an odd feature to see and go, yep, that's that's them. Yeah, they were like comparing photos and then they were like, wow, they do have similar ears from like a side profile and then they would like lay them over top of each other and I guess they matched. So they were like, it's the same person. <laughs> um, that's hilarious. Yeah. There was more done afterwards. I will say that's not the only thing, the only method um, for comparison. Uh, But yeah, that was kind of the grounds to begin with for why she was Anastasia. Um, But there were actually several distant Romanov relatives that did support her claims. Um, But it was noted that she would never speak Russian. Like they did she either wouldn't or couldn't speak Russian. She just refused to. So that was a huge kind of indicator for many that she wasn't the real Anastasia. Which I feel like if you were going to pretend to be a Russian princess or duchess, whatever, like you should probably know Russian. Um, just slight flaw on her part. But anyways... Um, Anderson actually filed a whole bunch of lawsuits for formal recognition after growing frustrated that people weren't believing who she said she was. So this caused a whole investigation to go on and a lawsuit that went on for almost three decades. So Anastasia had no dental or fingerprint records to compare to. And so investigators took both sides. Like there were a group of investigators trying to prove that Anderson was in fact Anastasia. And then there were a group of investigators trying to prove that she was not Anastasia. So the ones trying to prove that she was, they had experts analyze photos of the two of them that again came back as strikingly similar. And then they also had handwriting experts argue that they did share the same writing style, but that was really all that she had for her. And then the investigators who were trying to disprove her claims came up with a theory that she was a Polish factory worker named Franciska Shenskowska, Shenskowska? Yeah. Um, who disappeared from a boarding house in Berlin shortly before being pulled from the canal. And she did have a history of mental illness. They attributed her scars to an injury she had received from an explosion at a munitions factory that she was working at. And so at the time, there was a lot more evidence disproving her claims than there was proving. But it wasn't until 1970 that a German court ruled that she failed to prove that she was Anastasia. And so the end, the case had come to an end. She ended up moving to America following this, but... Until the day she died, she adamantly believed she was Anastasia. So I don't know if this was just a case of like mental illness and her loss of memory coming back at the same time. Like she literally did think that she was Anastasia. But yeah, there were still people who believed she was. 
others a lot more started believing otherwise. But in 1979, bones of the Romanov family were said to have been found in a mass grave by a bunch of amateur historians. But this didn't make news and it didn't kind of spread until 10 years later in 1989, since they were actually fearful of how the Soviet government would react to these claims. So they kept it on a down low for quite some time until it kind of they were literally safe to talk about this or bring it forward. Um, So in 1991, the grave was in Koptike Forest. I don't know. I definitely butchered that one. Um, was about 20 kilometers outside of the city they were in, of Yekaterinburg. Um, so this shallow... That was a very butchered sentence completely. I apologize. I think I tried to Google how to pronounce it, and it came back Yekaterinburg. Yekaterinburg? Okay. Yeah. Yekaterinburg. I, I don't know if that helped. I mean... I also Googled it and I even spelled it out for myself and split it up and I'm still managing to butcher it. <laughs> That's okay. Um, even the forest, like Koptike, I think, Koptike, I don't know. Anyways, there was a forest. Sure, we'll go with it. Yeah, forest, 20 kilometers-ish outside of a city. That's all you kind of really need to know. Um, in this shallow grave, they found the remains of nine people along with pieces of rope and broken sulfuric acid pots. And so the scientists that examined the bones were able to determine the gender and age of the nine people, and they found them to be consistent with those of the imperial family, the doctor, and the servants who were also executed that morning. So the nine bodies showed extensive damage. There was evidence of burning as well as gunshot wounds. And other forensic techniques were used to help identify the bodies, which was a lot of like facial reconstruction and photo overlay. But kind of the um, anthro side of it was the more science grounded techniques used. But there was a lot of controversy about the initial findings since only nine of the 11 bodies were found. And it was concluded that Alexei and one of the daughters were missing. So there was a lot of back and forth between whether they believed that the missing daughter was Marie or Anastasia. But the general kind of consensus was that Anastasia was the one that was missing and she was not in this mass grave. So in 1992, a year later, DNA testing was conducted, which confirmed that the five bodies of the nine, um, a mother, father, and three daughters, were all part of the same family. And they were able to confirm through DNA that the mother was Alexandra. And these findings were also confirmed by two other labs. So it is pretty backed up in science. Um, And then additional tests were run to kind of find out the male's DNA. And so they compared Nicholas's DNA to his deceased brother, um, Grand Duke George, his DNA. And his body was exhumed for a sample, actually. And the results did show that they were from the same family. So this did confirm that the father in the mass grave was Nicholas. Um, But in 2007, a second set of remains were found not too far from the original site. I think it was a bit to the east of the original site. And these remains were in far worse condition than the first set of remains. So basically the first nine that were found were full intact remains that could be analyzed. 
Um, the ones in 2007, only kind of around 10%, less than 10% of a full skeleton was scattered throughout this grave. Um, and the skeleton was also, or the pieces of skeletons were also found with pottery shards and a few bullets and ash. So the pottery fragments did match the ones that were found in the 1991 grave. So it was enough, of, at least that piece of evidence suggested that these two grave sites were related um, since they fit like a puzzle piece basically together, these pottery shards. And the ash does co cooperate with the burning scene on the bone of the first grave as well. And there were three bullets that were obtained from this second site. And they were able to determine through pattern analysis that they did belong to the same time period, like a gun from that same time period. But they weren't able to say that this gun was the same gun that was used on the first set of remains and the same gun that was used for the second set of re remains. So it couldn't be linked in that regard. But additional testing of the remains happened, and they were able to, de to determine that there was one male and one female present. So the male DNA sample was compared to the DNA of Nicholas and Alexandra, and it did indeed confirm that the male was Alexei in the second grave. And so Alexei's DNA was then compared to the unknown female's DNA that was found in the grave, and it indicated that the remains were over one million times more likely to be siblings. So it was pretty safe bet that these two were, in fact, brother and sister. And so DNA wasn't able to determine whether it was Anastasia or Marie. But scientists really at this point, they said ultimately it doesn't really matter because the remaining sisters have been proven to be part of the family and they're there. And the last sister was here, so we know that all family members were kind of accounted for. Um, but after the initial DNA conclusions of the first 1991 grave, relatives of the doctor, who was also killed alongside the Romanovs, they had asked the scientists who ran the DNA tests to compare Anderson's DNA with the Romanov DNA because they did believe, like, so her grandmother was the doctor i believe or grandfather um that kind of whole lineage believed that anderson was anastasia so what they did is although anderson passed away in 1984 they were able to obtain some of her um dna through a tissue sample they had in the lab somewhere and so they compared that dna actually to a living relative of this missing Polish woman they assumed Anderson was. And the results did show that Anderson was, in fact, not Anastasia. But aside from this, there were still people that re rejected the DNA results and still believed that Anastasia uh, was able to escape and that Anderson was her. Um, but to, to each their own in that aspect. But you're probably now wondering well, why weren't they all buried together? Like, why were nine in one and only two in the other? So there happens to be an account from one man who was tasked with dumping the bodies that e or that day. And according to him, the bodies were loaded into a truck and they were ordered to dump them in the forest. So 
there, they threw them down an abandoned mine shaft, threw some grenades in after them, and then just left. But apparently the bodies were still pretty visible, I guess. Um, and afterwards, the members of the firing squad decided to get drunk and tell the locals all about their adventures that day. And were telling them that they just killed the Romanov family and they just buried their bodies or dumped their bodies in this forest and, and literally gave them the exact location to this place. Not a smart move. They went back to the bodies um, before anyone else would kind of make the discovery of the Romanov family being dead there. Um, so they had loaded the bodies back into the trunk truck once again. And I guess the weather at the time wasn't the best. So the ground beneath them was super muddy and the weight of the bodies in the back of the truck got the truck stuck. So they were unable to move. So they planned on burning two of the bodies, which didn't really work. So then they tried dismembering them, hoping that the bodies would then burn faster Again, this didn't work. So they were stuck with like two half-burned remains and then nine bodies still in the trunk, in the truck. And I'm not entirely sure why they tried killing or um, getting rid of two first and then the nine. Like, I feel like if they were trying to get rid of them all, just try and burn all of them at once. I don't know if that's just my take on disposing of bodies. Um, but... Yeah, I feel like they were just kind of like, okay, we should try and cremate these bodies, but let's try it with the smaller ones first. Okay. And then they tried and they were like, yeah, that doesn't work. And then they're like, okay, now what do we do? Okay, yeah, that would make the most sense because... That's my assumption. Yeah. (laughs) So these would have been Alexi and the other sister in that second grave found in 2007. Um, But yeah, like you said, like afterwards, they were like, well, what do we do now? They had nine bodies. So they decided to pour acid all over them. I'm not really sure how the acid got in their possession. Not going to question it. It's Russia. Um, but they had enough acid to pour over these bodies in an attempt to disfigure them. They covered them up with some planks, apparently, and then filled the pit in with the remaining uh, dirt. And although the events can't, like, 100% be confirmed, like, it's just kind of this guy's account of what happened the evidence provide found at least in the bone can confirm the extent of like burning of the dismemberment and of the acid being poured over the bodies Um, they ran samples and did find sulfuric acid within the bone and they saw a lot of um like hack marks and sharp force trauma to the bone So that kind of ended the whole mystery of is Anastasia alive? Is whoever, like, did they escape? Um, There are a a couple really good documentaries on YouTube, too, that I recommend. I watched one for this. It was really interesting because they even have, like, firsthand documentation about some of the stuff that happened. And I guess all of the locals went on a huge, like they were trying to solve the case because they wanted more information. So they all went gathering information as well. But that is the story of the Romanovs and how they were executed. Unfortunately. Um, There's another documentary on Netflix called the last czars. 
and it is so good. Oh my goodness. We watched it in like one day and I think I'm going to rewatch it because it was just phenomenal. Is it solely about the Romanov family or kind of like the history of Russian SARS? It's no, just the Romanov family. So it's like, it's kind of like the Waco documentary where it has like people playing Mm. the family and then it'll have like experts come in and like talk about (gasps) what actually happened. So yeah, cool. definitely watch it. Okay, I'll add it. I couldn't remember the name of it to tell you before doing all this research, so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I guess it's fine. <laughs> Found some other sources, thankfully. <laughs> well, Nicole, uh, thank you so much for telling us about the history of that case. Journey, I know that you were kind of familiar about it, uh, but I didn't know anything about this family. I had heard the name Anastasia and I have heard about the Romanovs, but I didn't know a single thing about this case. Uh, so to hear that it's such a historical case, but it still has very like modern relevant information and investigation is so cool. And I really appreciate you telling us all about the entire history of it. Cause it is literally like multiple hundred years long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like I was the same. I think I mentioned it last episode too, but I only knew the name Romanov through the animated movie Anastasia, and I genuinely just did not realize they were a real family and a significant family <laughs> in that sense. But yeah, they ended up I think it was in like 2000 the church had like formally made them martyrs or something like that. I forget the term, but they had like, they were officially big part in the church. Yeah. That's super cool. Which is pretty neat. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. I also didn't realize that they were like somewhat re well, somewhat recent I say, but like 1917 was the end. Mm -hmm. Like I would have figured it was years before that. Yeah. Same, which is why I think this is so interesting. Like you said, the case itself happened in what the 16, 1700s. So they, the execution was in the early 1900s. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But the, the, um, the family started their reign in like 1613. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, it's crazy how a long time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's super interesting. Thank you so much for telling us all about that history. So now that we know the story of the Romanovs and their history, as well as um, their crime aspect of the story and how we discovered that it really was them in the 1970s, uh, Journey, would you like to tell us about forensic anthropology and how that was a very instrumental part in this case? Yes, I would love to. I just wanted to say, because you know how you guys are saying that you didn't know about the Romanovs? I was telling a friend that we were talking about the Romanovs for this episode, and they were like, oh, like the Black Widow? Like Natasha Romanov from Marvel? No way! (laughs) I was like, are you serious? No, not her. I'm not doing a forensic episode on Natasha Romanov. Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. Right? I totally forgot her last name was Romanov. Did they play into the movie that they were part of the Russian Romanov family? Probably not. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have. Because they are Russian, I think. They came from Russia. Yeah, but they don't speak of if she's part of the Romanov family. I feel like Romanov's a very common Russian last name. Fair. That would make sense. I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> who knows? Maybe I need to watch it again and update my information. Uh, okay. Anyways, um, I, as most of you know, I did my degree in forensic anthropology. So I really tried to kind of like condense four years of knowledge into like a half hour lecture. I ended up with 20 slides. So I'm going to talk fast and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yes, maybe um, a bit of a longer episode, but that's okay. And I apologize if it's really boring. This is stuff I find so interesting, but most people do not share that enthusiasm. Luckily, I did write a paper on like the history, the core requirements, and the objectives of forensic anthropologists. So I'm going to be pulling most of my information from that. Um, and to begin, forensic anthropology is the subdiscipline of biological or like physical anthropology, which is a subdiscipline of anthropology. So basically, it's a subdiscipline of a subdiscipline, and anthropology is described as the study of biological and cultural aspects of all humans in all places in all times, and it comes from the Greek root words anthropos, which translates to human being, and logos, which means the study of. So anthropology literally means the study of human beings, and it is so cool. Um, so forensic anthropology is the application of anthropology to the legal setting, and it focuses on the analysis of human skeletal remains that result from unexplained deaths. And so through the analysis of the skeletal remains, forensic anthropologists can identify the individual, the cause and the manner of death and the postmortem interval or how long they have been dead, which is so cool that a skeleton could tell you everything you need to know about a person, more or less, um, and how they died. And so now that we kind of understand like what anthropology and forensic anthropology are, we get to learn about the history of it. Um, so forensic anthropology being a subdiscipline of a subdiscipline is fairly new. And so it didn't really get its start until like the 19th century. And in the very, very beginning, many forensic anthropologists were anatomists and physicians who were just applying their knowledge of the human skeletal system to a forensic setting as best they could. They didn't have all the procedures and the knowledge that we have today. And with that being said, the birth of forensic anthropology kind of parallels that of physical anthropology. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of physical anthropology to kind of give you a better understanding of how forensic anthropology was born. And um, if you guys are counting how many times I can say anthropology in this episode, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> so the origin of physical anthropology in Europe was in France with Jean-Joseph Sue who published measurements of cadavers for artists so that they could more accurately draw body proportions. And so this happened in 1755. And his work inspired research into stature calculations. And then it was kind of added onto by Matthew Orfila. And so together, their calculations were used to evaluate stature from incomplete remains. And I think it's really interesting that this whole kind of discipline started by someone who was helping an artist learn how to draw a body properly. Yeah, I was... And that kind of like jumped I was just going to mention that. I had no idea that like physical anthropology started because an artist wanted to draw people better. Yeah, right? I was so excited when I learned that because it's so random. 
Yeah, so the next important player from Europe, you guys will know him. His name is Paul Broca. And so his name is familiar because he's famous for his research in the frontal region of the brain that's now called Broca's area and is in charge of our speech. That's so cool. How? Okay. Sorry, continue. Right? I'm sure you'll answer my questions, <laughs> but I didn't realize Broca was part of Anthro. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, and so he actually founded the world's first official organization of physical anthropology in Paris in 1859. What? That's so cool. Yeah, I don't remember why he was interested in physical anthropology, um, but he also invented the osteometric board and the goniometer. Um, and so the osteometric board is used for measuring long bones, like your humerus and your femur. And it's actually still used today. I know that we used one in Michelle's class a while ago in our forensic anthropology uh, section. Yep. Um, and then a goniometer measures the angles of the face, um, which can be used to estimate ancestry. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's a version that we use of it today, but I'm not sure what it's called. Could I have a kind of on-topic, off-topic speculation. Yes. Could Broca have been involved with anthropology due to phrenology at the time? Like, because remember phrenology's, like, shape of the brain and head, basically. If he, like, tried to gain a better understanding of the skull and body... Yeah, that makes sense. ...to tell him more of the mind? Yeah, I was actually wondering the same thing, because I know that Broca was... I mean, if I remember correctly, was big into phrenology. And it would make sense that phrenology is like somehow related to anthropology because it is the measurement of like structures in the body. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. For answering that. Because, <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely makes sense as to why he would be interested in physical anthropology and how the skeleton and the body works if he's, yeah. Okay. Cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> Um, so the, then the next person is Carl Pearson. And so he presented information that was found through the comparison of 50 male and 50 female long bones. Um, he presented this information as a regression equation in 1899. And so the actual comparison was done by another scientist. I cannot pronounce their name. However, Pearson analyzed the information and kind of presented it um, in a regression equation, like I said, which is a statistically developed formula that's used to demonstrate the relationship between two variables. So it kind of was like, okay, the male long bones are this long. That means they are this tall, kind of. That was what he um, kind of worked on and the difference between how the length of a male long bone differs from the length of a female long bone and how that will differ um, in their stature estimation. So, very cool. And then the first kind of like forensic anthropology was used in Germany and Austria in paternity cases. And so, Schwedetsky applied physical anthropology techniques to determine the parentage of lost children and any kids whose fatherhood was argued, so if they didn't know who the father was. And they offered over 2,500 opinions per year concerning paternity cases in the Austrian and German courts. I don't really know how many years this was used for, so I don't know if it was like 2,500 total or if it was uh, 2,500 per year for 10 years kind of deal. 
Um, either way, that is a lot of consultations with anthropologists, and it kind of really highlighted the importance of forensic anthropology. And then moving to America, forensic anthropology had its start in 1850 during the trial of John Webster. Um, so Jeffries, Wyman, and Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. were anatomists with the University of Harvard, and so they were called in to analyze the suspected remains of Dr. George Parkman. And so Wyman was brought in to identify the burned remains, and Holmes was tasked with identifying the cause and manner of death. And so even though they performed the first practical use of forensic anthropology, Thomas Dwight is regarded as the father of forensic anthropology in the United States. And so he was the first person to write articles, essays, and give lectures concerning the subject of human skeletal identification. And then after he wrote a prize-winning essay about medical legal identification of the human skeleton, he went on to publish more articles about the estimation of sex, age at death, and stature. And so these publications kind of helped build the foundation for the fields of forensic anthropology and skeletal biology. So very important person. And then... George Dorsey, who followed Thomas Dwight, is considered the first trained forensic anthropologist in America. So Thomas Dwight was the father. Dorsey is the first person to work as a or train as a forensic anthropologist. Um, he got his doctorate from Harvard and then began working at the Field Columbian Museum in Chicago in 1896. And so shortly after getting that job, he testified at the trial of Adolf Lutgert. I apologize if I pronounced that wrong, who was accused of killing his wife and disposing of the body in a vat of potash in his sausage factory. Um, that's a fun sentence. Uh, so Dorsey's testimony was largely criticized due to the small amount of evidence that he had to base his conclusions on, and it kind of marked the end of his contribution to forensic anthropology, which is kind of sad disposing of a body in potash would kind of super degrade it. So there probably wasn't a lot of skeletal um, remains left for him to analyze. And it being such a new discipline didn't help either. So another major player in the birth of forensic anthropology is Ailes Herlichka. His last name is spelled H-R-D-L-I-C-K-A. And I had a heck of a time trying to figure out how to pronounce that. So Herlichka received a medical degree in 1892 after immigrating to the United States in 1881 from what is considered today's Czech Republic. So eventually his interest changed from medicine to anthropology, and he became the first curator of physical anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, and so like while he worked at the Smithsonian, Herlichka started the American Journal of Forensic Anthropology in 1918. And so even though his main interest wasn't forensic anthropology, his contributions to the discipline were still tremendous, um, even though they're often overshadowed by his work in other areas of medicine and anthropology. Um, so his research was mostly on medical legal issues. He reported on autopsies, analyzed skeletal cases, and provided testimonies on many forensic issues. Um, he was also the first anthropologist to consult for the FBI on cases involving skeletal remains, which is super cool. And so this relationship with the FBI is still maintained to this day, and forensic anthropologists are still called to consult on cases, and it's kind of where we get the TV show Bones. 
And so the wars following 1939 were responsible for generating the need to identify recovered human remains, and it resulted in the development of new research and techniques in forensic anthropology. And so these developments include, but are not limited to, um, the opening of the Central Identification Laboratory, or CILHI, in Hawaii in the early 1940s, and the Skeletal Identification Facility, which opened in Japan in the early 1950s. So the Central Identification Laboratory is now the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency, excuse me, or DPAA. And so it still focuses on the identification and repatriation of soldiers. Um, this facility is so fascinating to me, and I've always wanted to work for it. I think it would just be such a great opportunity to go and the remains are brought to you. You have to figure out who they are, and then you get to return those soldiers to their family, which is just such an honor to be able to give someone back to someone. It should be so cool. That is um, such an interesting, but also, like, obviously sad, but very rewarding job to be able to give families closure that they might not have known they'd ever get from that situation. Exactly. Yeah, and it's still going, like, it opened in the early 1940s, and it's still operating today. Like, that's a long time to be repatriating soldiers. Like, I can't even imagine. And so then... In 1972, the physical anthropology section of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences met for the first time. And then in 1977, the American Board of Forensic Anthropology was created to kind of establish standards for people who practice forensic anthropology in the United States and Canada. If you want to be like a good and recognized forensic anthropologist, you want to receive certification from the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. Um, it has such rigorous educational and experiential requirements. Um, so it's a really good way for you to like qualify as an expert in the field. Um, and as of 2017, only 119 forensic anthropologists are ABFA certified, which felt like a small number. Um, but there's not really a lot of like requirement for forensic anthropologists right now. And so is that just that's just in the states too, right? I think or is it like a I think it's like North America. North America? Yeah, it seems kind of low. I would have thought there'd be more. Yeah. At least that's my assumption is that it's America or like North America, not just the states, but Canadians as well. Um yeah, and then in Europe, they have the Forensic Anthropology Society of Europe, or FASE, which was formed as part of the International Academy of Legal Medicine. And so this is where you would go to be certified as a forensic anthropologist in Europe. Um, and so it has two levels of certification. And so the first level is kind of like you got a master's or a doctoral degree, you have five years experience, and then you have worked on at least 20 cases. And then the second level kind of requires only a master's degree, some training and casework experience. Um, but you have to complete an exam to be FASE certified. Okay, so now that I've thoroughly bored you on the history of forensic anthropology, I am going to talk about the objectives of a forensic anthropologist. So they're specifically tasked with cases of human deaths where the remains are so decomposed that other forensic specialists aren't able to get any information from them. So there are five main objectives that a forensic anthropologist is kind of charged with or tasked with. 
Um, and so their first task is to determine ancestry, sex, age, and living height of the skeleton when the body is too badly decomposed to gain this information from a visual examination or an autopsy. So they use anthroposcopic, osteometric, chemical, and histologic methods of gathering this data. And so the anthroposcopic methods involve the visual examination of the skeleton to identify individual characteristics. The osteometric methods are the actual physical measurement of the bone using the calipers or the osteometric boards. And then entering those measurements into a formula to kind of tell you what you need to know. And then chemical methods include analyzing the chemical makeup of skeletal structures and associated matter. And so this can actually include the soil surrounding where the remains were found and isotopic analysis to reconstruct diet and where the individual grew up. Um, And then histology is the study of the microstructures of bones and teeth. So what you can learn from studying the like physical components of the bone and teeth. And so chemical and histological methods often require special and expensive instruments that are not available to most forensic anthropologists. So forensic anthropologists commonly utilize the anthroposcopic and osteometric methods um, to obtain data for from the skeleton. And so the information that they get from these methods is then used to make a biological profile. And so a biological profile is made up of the estimations of sex, age, ancestry, and stature, and it will be used to either exclude or positively identify an individual. Um, I talk a bit more about this later on. And so the second task is to identify uh, if there's any trauma on the skeleton. Um, so with this step, you would find out the nature and the causes of the trauma and kind of identify the cause or manner of death. And then thirdly, they're tasked with determining the postmortem interval. So forensic anthropologists are given this job specifically because they have studied in detail the processes of decomposition so they can better estimate how long this person has been dead for. Um, And then their fourth job is usually the first thing they do in a case, which is locating and recovering the remains by applying archaeological methods. And so, yeah, an anthropologist would be trained in the proper archaeological methods needed to correctly exhume remains. It is a very exhausting process uh, to carefully remove remains. I went to, I did a forensic archaeology field school. And even though our remains, they were just pigs, they were stolen by coyotes. um, Everyone else had to like really tediously, like with a paintbrush, kind of scrape away the dirt. And you were very afraid with your little trowel that you were going to break anything. Um. And then lastly, they can identify any unique uh, markers on the skeletal remains that will aid in obtaining positive identification. So if someone has like fallen out of a tree and broken their arm and that's the person they're looking for and then they find a skeleton with bone remodeling on their radius and ulna that indicates that they fell out of a tree and broke their arm. And so all of this information uh, that they learn by examining the body is neatly compiled into a report And so this report includes all of the information for the case. So you have like case number, investigator, date, you analyze the skeleton, who performed the investigation or the analysis, what condition the skeletal remains are found in, um, your estimations of biological affinity, sex, age, stature, um, any trauma found on the skeleton. And it also includes the background of the case as far as the forensic anthropologist is concerned um, and how they like kind of got the remains. 
And so there's also um, a complete inventory of the entire skeleton where each bone is analyzed in depth and it's noted if it's present, which side is present, if that's applicable, and if there was any trauma on the bone. And that includes going through all of the teeth, all of your um, wrist bones, all of your finger bones, like literally every bone is like searched for. And so then any trauma present on the bone is described in detail. And then the report goes into detail for how the forensic anthropologist estimated the biological affinity, sex, age, and stature using both both morphological and metric evaluations um, and kind of why they feel that this skeleton is exhibiting these things. And then it finishes off with photos of the entire skeleton laid out in anatomical order, close-ups of all the trauma highlighted earlier in the report, and just photos of everything. And so kind of to put a report like this into perspective, for my skeletal analysis class, our first report, which only included like the summary of the case, complete skeletal inventory, and the estimation of biological affinity and any corresponding photos, was 81 pages long. And so you can kind of imagine how long a detailed forensic report would be if our dinky little university report was 81 pages long. Your, like, beginning class anthropology sort of report was longer than my completed thesis. (laughs) That... (laughs) Most of it was photos, I will admit. Not all of that was text. Um, But still, isn't that incredible? Yeah, like even, but still, like that's wow. Yeah. Props to you. That's crazy. I, <laughs> I couldn't imagine being the person that would have to like read through that though. Yeah. Like for any trial and case, like that's a lot of paperwork, a lot of information, and that was like a third of the information that we needed to have. Like oh we didn't gosh. have the estimation of sex or age or um. Well, no wait, what? It was biological affinity or stature. So we just had our... Oh, my gosh. S- yeah. Um, I can re- include a PDF of one of the reports that I made for school in our sources. Um, if any of you want to, like, have a look at it, it's really cool. And that's one of my absolute favorite memories of my degree was, like, working in the bone lab until 10 p.m. on these reports with my classmates. It was so much fun. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> So, forensic anthropologists are called to work on many different kinds of cases, such as identifying victims of mass disasters, identifying victims of human human rights abuses, and identifying people who are not part of a crime, but were of historical significance, kind of like this case, even though they were part of a crime. And so, there are many organizations that focus on the identification of victims of human rights abuses and civil unrest all over the world. Um, It would be my dream to get in with one of those organizations and work with them. Um, But a very important person in this type of investigation is Clyde Snow. And so he has worked on many cases of human rights abuses and has done a considerable amount to like expose the circumstances surrounding the deaths of victims of political violence. And so he has organized and educated local authorities on the ways to investigate said atrocities. And so he's most well known for his work in Argentina. And so he found and exhumed many mass graves in Argentina and spent five years training the Argentinian or yeah, forensic anthropology team. Um, 
And then due to his work in Argentina, at least five officers were convicted of their crimes during the Dirty War in the 1970s. And I think it's really cool that he like goes to this place and educates the locals there on how to do how to investigate these things. He's kind of sharing what he knows, which I think is cool. Okay, so now that you know a little bit about what is expected of a forensic anthropologist, I'm going to cover some of the education requirements to become a forensic anthropologist. So you need a bachelor's degree in either anthropology or biology. Um, there's not really, and there never has been, a high demand for forensic anthropologists. Um, so it's suggested that they obtain schooling in a broader biological field to kind of increase their chances of finding a job after university. That is a fact that I wish that I had learned uh, before my last year of university, um, but it is what it is. And so then a master's degree is also required, um, and you want your focus to be on physical anthropology. Um, and this can be either a master of science or a master of arts, but it's important that you choose a master's program that allows you to complete casework while you're studying. So you're building up that experience while um, going to school. Um, and if you want to be eligible for certification, you need to complete a doctoral degree as well. And so these degrees are very competitive and require the completion of several years of coursework and an extensive dissertation. So yeah, not a lot of people go on to complete that, which is probably why there's such a small number of um, ABFA certified individuals. But yeah, a forensic anthropologist needs to like continually be updating their education because science is an ever-changing field. And so some requirements that aren't really education specific are the ability to like critically think, to use sound logic, have heightened analytical skills and possess the ability to be objective. And a forensic anthropologist must realize that their role is to only relay what the body and the science are saying. They are not allowed to offer their opinion on it or their interpretation. They are only to speak on what the skeleton is showing them, which I think is so cool because you're kind of speaking for an individual who can't speak for themselves in a way, which I just think is so cool. And so then... Forensic anthropologists are often called to court to testify. So it's very, 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 very important that a forensic anthropologist takes detailed notes, photographs, and other documentation while they're initially examining the skeleton because the trial doesn't usually occur for many years after they've initially examined the bones. Um, and so having these detailed notes allow them to review if and when they are called to the stand so they are accurately reminded of what uh, the skeleton was telling them during that initial uh, examination. And so it's kind of their job to educate the jury on their findings, but not present it in a way that's confusing to the jury. And so they have to walk a very fine line of speaking in correct scientific terms, but not confusing the jury and still making it understandable without oversimplifying it. But like every science, the field of forensic anthropology is not perfect. So I'm going to talk about some issues in the field. Um, so one of the major issues is that the anthroposcopic method of gathering data is very subjective, even though it is the most common method utilized. And so it involves looking at certain characteristics on the skeleton and determining whether or not they're indicative of male or female um, 
it involves like the determination of whether or not something is large or small, which can vary between anthropologists. So for example, some people will look at a nuchal crest, which is the bump at the back of your skull that anchors your trapezius muscles and say it's large and indicates male, while others may say that it is small and indicates female. And so to kind of address this issue, there are comparison charts of the most variable features between the sexes, ages, and ancestries that forensic anthropologists can use. Um, but it's still not exact because you still would compare and be like, okay, is this a one, two, three, four, or five? And so, again, different anthropologists may assign it a different number. But yeah, so another fix is to use metric methods, which involve the actual measurements of features. Um, but that is an issue in itself because you often need to know what the sex of the skeleton is before you can enter um, your measurement into a formula. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg situation, like which one do you do first? Um, anyway, kind of difficult. And the next uh, major issue is that not every formula can be applied to every ancestry. And so this issue has been addressed by having many researchers travel around the world to develop discriminant functions that apply to different ancestries. Um, and this is really important because using like a Caucasian formula on an indigenous skeleton will result in an inaccurate biological profile. So you want to know which formula will give you the right information. And then the third issue with forensic anthropology um, is the term ancestry. And so previously, anthropologists have used the term race, but they changed it to ancestry as there's no such thing as human races, as humans by definition are a race. And so that being said, more and more people are traveling and creating mixed uh, ancestries. And so it's predicted that humans are going to be so commingled that forensic anthropologists are not able to differentiate between ancestries or biological affinities. And another issue with that is that the individual might not identify with the ancestry that their skeleton exhibits, uh, which creates another problem for positive identifications. Um and then the fourth issue, and kind of the last one I'll mention today, is the estimation of biological sex. Um, so in this day and age, there's an increasing prevalence of transgender and non-binary individuals. And so this is creating a difficulty for forensic anthropologists because the skeleton might be indicating male while the individual, while they were alive, identified as female. And so if the forensic anthropologist says they have a male skeleton, the missing individual might be overlooked because they didn't identify as male, so they wouldn't be looking for a male skeleton. And so this is a relatively new difficulty, um, so we're not totally sure how to address it. Although more research into the effects of puberty blockers and hormones on the skeleton would be hugely beneficial. And if I was to do my master's, I wanted to make this the focus of my research because it's very fascinating and relevant to, to, to today's society. But yeah, now I am going to move on and talk about how forensic anthropology is relevant to the Romanov family. Uh, Nicole covered basically everything and a little bit more of what I have. Um, <laughs> so that's fun. I didn't know about the 2007 grave, so I don't have that part in my notes, which is kind of cool. But yeah, so a mass grave less than a meter deep was found roughly 20 miles outside of Yekaterinburg. Um, in 1991, uh, or I guess it was found before then, but that's when it was announced, according to this source. 
The skeletal remains of nine individuals were found, and most of the remains were very badly damaged. They all showed evidence of violence or mistreatment at or around time of death. Um, This includes bullet wounds, bayonet marks, and the destruction of facial bones to make identification difficult. Um, And so the bodies in this grave were suspected to be the Royal Russian Romanov family. Um, And yeah, like Nicole said, their bodies were initially dropped into a mine shaft and then grenades were detonated on top of them. My source just said that there was a lot of witnesses present when they were put into the mine shaft. It didn't tell me that um, the officers who did that got drunk and blabbed around town. So I thought that was kind of interesting um, that they're just bad secret keepers. But yeah, so the bodies were then moved uh, to a more secret location. Um, And then two bodies were not included or were cremated. And then the rest of the nine bodies were put into this pit um, with sulfuric acid poured over their faces. Um, Like Nicole said, Russian experts performed facial reconstruction, like odontology examinations, age estimation, and sex estimations to identify the skeletons. Uh, Some of the bodies actually had gold, platinum, and porcelain dental work, which was the first indicator that these were the bodies of aristocrats, um, which is kind of cool. And so they weren't solely identified by forensic anthropology. Um, DNA played a huge role, like Nicole said. So they amplified the X and Y chromosomes to indicate that there were four male and five female bodies in the grave. Further DNA analysis said that five of the skeletons were related um, with two parents and three children. Um, the other adults were not part of the family and like, were suspected to be the servants. The fact that they were missing children really supported the idea that two of the bodies were burned, buried separately, or survived. Um, And so the mitochondrial DNA of Prince Philip, who is a direct maternal descendant of Alexandra, was compared to that of the children and the female skeleton that was thought to be her. And they all had the same mitochondrial DNA, um, supporting the fact that this was the Romanovs. Um, the mitochondrial DNA of the Tsar or Nicholas was compared to two maternal relatives. Uh, this was a little bit more difficult because there was a heteroplasmy in his DNA that was the only difference in the mitochondrial DNA. And they didn't have access to his mother or his grandmother's DNA to see if that heteroplasmy was present in their DNA. Um, And so a heteroplasmy is just the presence of more than one mitochondrial DNA type in an individual. So it just kind of put a little, like, I don't know what I'm trying to think of. Anyway, it made it difficult. Um, And so this was the first major historical investigation where both STR and mitochondrial DNA were used as investigative tools. Um, So the STR evidence told us that a family was present in the grave and then the mitochondrial DNA evidence told us that it was most likely the Romanov family with two children missing. So in regards to forensic anthropology, uh, when the skeletons were found, they had to be separated into individuals. Um, And so they had to like find each bone and say, okay, this goes with this, the rest of the skeleton. Probably the worst part of the job is doing that because it's so difficult. Um, And then they had to identify the individuals that were associated with each of the skeletons. Um, This part was really difficult because there wasn't a lot of specific anti-mortem information available for each person who was suspected to be in the grave. 
So they just use like more general information of age, gender, ancestry, and stature, and then compared the skulls to photographs to identify them. This is tricky. Nicole covered everything. Um, <laughs> so two of the skeletons are identified as middle-aged females. Uh, Basarina and her like maid. Four were identified as mature men, and the remaining three were identified as three young women. And so all of the skeletons shared European ancestry, and there was no skeleton matching that of a young man, which supports the theory that Alexi was either buried elsewhere or burned. And they're missing the fourth young female skeleton. Um, and so, like, the male skeletons are hypothesized to be Nicholas, Dr. Botkin, uh, the cook Trupp, and the valet Karitinov. And then the adult females are like Alexandra and her maid Demidova. I really like her name. I don't know if that's her name or just how she was referred to. But yeah, some researchers were able to identify the young female skeletons as Olga, Tatiana, and Maria um, in this source, which kind of lets us infer that the missing female skeleton was Anastasia. This was supported by um, the fact that the annular epiphyses of the vertebrae were fused to the bodies, which indicated that all of the skeletons were over the age of 17, which eliminates Anastasia and Alexi, who were the youngest children. This information, they didn't use objective comparison methods to like get this information, so we kind of need to take it with a grain of salt. It doesn't really definitively prove anything. But yeah, the source I was using was uh, 18 pages long of facial like comparison and superimposition over photos. So I'm just going to talk about the conclusion so that we're not here for literal hours. And so the basics were that the Tsar, his wife, their servants, their daughters... Uh, Olga and Tatiana were for sure in the grave, and the missing daughter being either Maria or Anastasia and Alexei were buried elsewhere. Um, genetic studies confirmed these osteological identifications of this being the Romanov family, but it was not able to identify which of the daughters were present. Um, yeah, and this specific study involved the comparison of the skulls to photographs of the Romanov family members suspected to be present in this grave. Um, the comparisons were fairly accurate with the skeletons that were identified via other methods. Um, but for the skeletons who were not able to be identified specifically, uh, the photo comparisons were still apparently fairly consistent, but not able to definitively prove an identity. It's not a sound way to identify an individual. Usually, nowadays, we would depend on something else rather than superimposing a photo over a severely damaged skull. But yeah, in conclusion, uh, forensic anthropology is a very fascinating field that has many beneficial characteristics and a very detailed history, as you guys all now know. Um, but it does have some problems that need to be addressed so that it can stay accurate and useful in forensics. Um, and unfortunately, there are not many cases where forensic anthropologists are required. And so there are not that many jobs available. And therefore, it is a highly competitive field. Um, so if you wish to succeed, you need to have expertise in other additional fields to kind of help you stand out. My professor advised me to do like x-ray technician or like pick something else outside of anthropology to focus on to kind of weasel my way in. Well, this concludes my information on the discipline of forensic anthropology. And I'll end this the same way I ended my essay. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I can't believe I ended an essay like that in my fourth year university. 
But yeah, I hope this made sense. And if anyone has any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. I am obviously very passionate about this discipline. Um, and I would love to talk for hours about it. Well, Journey, thank you so much. I would like to start by saying that was the most interesting TED Talk that I've ever heard. <laughs> well, thank um, you. <laughs> um, yeah, I only ever took one class in university about anthropology. Er, I guess I took two, but the specific to physical or forensic anthropology was the intro to forensic anthro. And I have been so interested in it ever since. Like, I think your degree is so cool because we can learn so much about the skeleton and that's not something that we would necessarily think can tell you a lot Yeah, because everyone's like, oh, well, we're all the same on the inside. But we're not. But we're, but we're not. It's just, it's so cool. I would love to hear you talk for hours about this because it's something that I just think is super interesting and I'm sure our listeners will think is also super interesting to learn about. I hope so. I hope I didn't bore them. I know it got a little dry in there because it was just a lot of information, but it is so cool. And I didn't even cover half of what's the most interesting about this degree. Well, thank you so much to both of you, Journey and Nicole. Uh, Nicole, for you telling us all about the really interesting and very long history of the Romanoff family. Uh, and Journey for telling us all about forensic anthropology and the history and how to get into the field and also how it was relevant to the case. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, we have another one coming out in a couple weeks. The next topic is on the redhead murders um, and forensic taphonomy, uh, which more commonly known uh, as body farms. Uh, so forensic taphonomy directly relates to body farms, um, which if you're not sure what that is, we will get much more into it next episode. But basically speaking, it is a farm of deceased bodies where people do research on decomposition. Um, so just before we go into what our socials are, I do have a very not good joke. Amazing. <laughs> Let's hear it. I'm excited. It, uh, I, I really struggled to find a joke related to, to anthropology. Um, yeah, they weren't great, but here's what I found. Um, so why did the anthropologist eat a lot of yogurt? To have strong bones? <laughs> I have no idea. So that he could better understand culture. Oh. oh. <laughs> Grown. That's amazing. That's actually a really good one. What? That's fantastic. All right. Well, I'm good. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. It was a bit of a struggle to find. <laughs> um, so, Nicole, would you care to tell our lovely listeners where they can find us on social media? Of course. Um, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is at WTForensicsPC. Our website is WhatTheForensics.ca. You can find all of our source information, some photos, um, some merchandise that is going to be up there. Um, and then our email is WhatTheForensics at gmail.com. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, there's also an, an input form of some sort on our website if you ever want to get a hold of us that way. Perfect. Thank you so much, Nicole. And thank you both again for sharing all of the super interesting information with us today. 
Um, so with that being said, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week. Mm -hmm.